0: Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. So if you look at my title, I think it's doing me a disservice because if we're listening to our guts, it's saying that we should go have lunch. So my primary goal is to stay on time and maybe even end early. And I'm going to try to stay at the 20,000-foot view. So uh, with that in mind, I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about my favorite topic, and that is inflammatory bowel diseases. And the reason that these diseases are interesting is that they're the prototypes of what I call new age disorders. And what I mean by that is if you look at the epidemiology of these diseases, they were rare and very uncommon a century ago. So we saw this trend in uh, industrialized countries And we now know that that incidence has gone up to a fairly alarming frequency. But we're seeing the same epidemiology in newly industrialized countries. And I think that many of the trends uh, that we saw previously are now being seen there. So this is a very short period in evolution. It certainly cannot be explained by genetic drift in uh, the human population. So it has to be due to other things. And the most obvious uh, factors are gonna be factors that we've created either through industrialization, changes in our lifestyle, or changes in our microbiome. Those tend to be related because it turns out that changes in diet and environment have a dramatic effect on our microbiome. So, Steve wanted me to talk about the microbial basis of IBD. And so our concept is really uh, shown here. So it's a Venn diagram. And what we now know about IBD is that there's almost certainly a genetic basis. But that genetic basis is not sufficient by itself to cause disease. There, There are other factors that have to contribute. We think environment is important. We also think changes in the gut microbiome. And it's really the convergence of these factors that leads to the development of IBD. That being said, our conceptual understanding of how these factors come together to increase the risk of uh, IBD and cause it is really very uh, very poorly developed. So what does our gut microbiome look like? Uh, it's shown here. So this is um, a collection of cells and by definition if you look at Webster's is actually an organ of our body. It's different from other organs in that it's acquired, but it is a multicellular uh, body of cells that has multiple functions and is organized. Those of you that are up front can actually see that there's some stratification of these gut microbes as they associate with the mucosal surface, and that tells us that these cells are not there just by accident. They're there, we select them genetically. Each of our microbiomes is customized to our biology, and at the same time, they self-select in a way that results in a community activity. They're stable, they're with us most of our lives, but they can be changed. So I think of it as a gut microbial organ. And what we know from the studies that have happened in the past two decades is that gut microbes are very beneficial to us. Um, and there have been numerous examples, uh, some illustrated here. But relevant to the discussion today, we know that uh, gut microbes are important for the development and conditioning of the immune system. We also know that it's important for digestion and processing of nutrients in a way that benefits us. We uh, know that the gut microbiome plays a role in um, conditioning the gut epithelium, that is the mucosal lining, in a way that provides protection against potential pathogens. And so there are many things that we uh, know about the gut microbiome, and thinking about it in terms of an organ actually is, I think, a a fairly good way of thinking about it, because we really need our gut microbiome. When we get rid of it, let's say, with broad-spectrum antibiotics, we become very susceptible to pathogens like C. diff. Uh, It's an organ that can be transplanted from one individual to another. That's, for example, fecal microbial transplant. There, we even have the, uh, we know that that transplant will take for a period of time, but ultimately most of those microbes from the donor will be rejected because our microbiomes are very specific to our own biology. But there's a dark side to gut microbes. And I think that this is becoming increasingly known. Uh, Gut microbes that get into the bloodstream can cause infection. Uh, We also have good evidence that gut microbes can play a role in the pathogenesis of certain types of cancers, neurologic disorders, and in metabolism. There's a great interest in studying gut microbes in the context of metabolic diseases like obesity and diabetes. But for today, I'm gonna talk about um, the role of gut microbes in uh, inflammatory bowel diseases. So our knowledge about gut microbes uh, actually is still fairly rudimentary. And if we think about why, I think the answers are here. For the past uh, century, we've relied primarily on culture-based technologies. So these are very low throughput ways uh, that basically take microbes out of the body, try to grow it under very artificial conditions, and you can just imagine that this provides very limited information. First of all, you can only grow about 20% of these microbes under standard uh, microbiological culture conditions. Second thing is that when you take these microbes out, they they act and, and function very differently from the environment that they came from. And the third thing I think is that we've recognized that these microbes really have to be studied in the environment from which they came, that is, in the context of the host or the patient, because these are microbes that uh, live and dwell and depend on us for their fitness and also for their uh, functional impact. So over the past decade, decade and a half, Some new technologies have emerged and these technologies now allow us to look at gut microbes in a very comprehensive way. These are culture-independent approaches. and The first technology that came by was uh, the um, realization that a single gene that's found in all bacteria that encodes for uh, a ribosomal subunit. 16S is uh, one that actually has undergone uh, genetic variation every time a new group of microbes has appeared and as a consequence these variations allow us to identify individual groups of bacteria and it has been uh, uh, now very easy to do, it's very cheap and we can tell with a certain degree of certainty Who is there in your microbiome? And a lot of studies have uh, emanated from this type of technology. The problem is that this technology doesn't tell you what they're doing. And so there have been some additional uh, advances in this technology. Uh, The cost and the uh, the depth of sequencing now is much greater. It now allows us to rather than sequence just one gene in a population of microbes, all the genes. This is called metagenomics. And this gives us so much more information. Uh, Just imagine if you took a fingerprint, you couldn't tell what that person actually looks like or is doing. Now you're taking Uh, the genetic profile of that entire individual. And there you can learn a lot more about that individual. So this is the same thing uh, when we apply metagenomics to microbial communities. Um, But the best thing may be things that actually represent function. For example, what are they producing? And so this is the area of metabolomics. Uh, Metabolomics uh, has shown that these microbes from our gut uh, produce thousands of molecules. Uh, They're appearing in your bloodstream uh, uh, every hour of the day. And many of these are bioactive. But this is a very nascent field because we still don't know, or most of these uh, metabolites have not been characterized and we don't know what their function is. So this is uh, really a starting point in terms of our understanding of gut microbes. Now what have we learned? So this is an example of what 16S technology has done. So shown in the left panel is the microbial profile based on 16S uh, ribosomal signatures in a healthy individual. And you can see most of it from the ileum to the rectum is uh, uh, either green or blue. These are the two major phyla that are represented in a healthy gut. These are firmicutes and bacteroidetes. Now if you look at the middle panel, this is uh, the kind of profile that we'll see in patients with active inflammatory bowel diseases. The profiles have shifted dramatically, and instead of the bacteroidetes and uh, firmicutes as being the dominant phyla, we now begin to see the emergence of less common groups. For example, proteobacteria, which is shown, I think, in the yellow, as well as certain types of firmicutes that normally aren't represented in a healthy microbiome. Are these changes a cause or an effect or an epiphenomenon? we don 't know, and part of the problem is the following so If you look at the bar graph, this is sort of the illustrates the transitional nature of inflammatory bowel disease, starting from pre disease to active disease, where many of these patients are in different diets they 're uh, exposed to different environmental stimuli, and they have different disease activities so most of the studies that have been published to date about the microbiome have do- been done after the development of disease. And this is really problematic because we don't know whether these cha- how to interpret these changes. And uh, I think that that has been one of the biggest hurdles in, in moving this field forward. So just to show you what metagenomics can do, so this is a study that we reported a few years ago. This is actually a sample from my own colon, and uh, it was done. uh, I underwent a colonoscopy, uh, unprepped, uh, where they sampled my right colon and left colon, and then we did what we call shotgun sequencing for metagenomics. And I think it gives you an idea of the kind of power and potential application of this technology. So if you look at my right colon, most of these functional subsystems are related to carbohydrate metabolism. But you can see that the carbohydrate metabolism uh, of microbes on the right side of my colon is very different from the left side. So this gives us another piece of information that might be helpful in understanding what these microbes are doing and how they may contribute to health and disease. So let me get back to the central question. Uh, You know, uh, what role do microbes have in the pathogenesis or, or causation of inflammatory bowel diseases? This is a uh, difficult question to answer, because I think in uh, this morning's, many of the morning's talks, we recognize the fact that IBD is comprised of hundreds of disorders. They just happen to fall into two clinical phenotypes, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. So when we're talking about finding a simple answer that explains everything, we're not going to find it. If we're trying to find a, uh, one therapy that fits all, we're not gonna find it. So this is really the problem and the challenge that face us. And uh, this is just illustrated by another fact of uh, why uh, studying the microbiome in IBD is difficult. If you look at the uh, disease course of uh, these four uh, subjects, uh, if you look at the first panel on the on the left if you sampled at the peak of uh, active disease and uh, compared it to a sample that may be at a point of remission you get two different answers. Uh, same goes for the panel below where a patient has chronic relapsing disease and to my actually, uh, to my Bill Wilderman, uh, nobody pays attention to this. Most of these studies that have been reported are cross-sectional studies, taken at any point in time without consideration to disease activity or other clinical metadata, and consequently, it's not surprising that we haven't really uh, found any trends that have been uh, useful in our understanding of uh, the gut microbiome. So with these challenges in mind, how 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 do we get around these challenges? So I'm going to provide an example, and this is an example that actually started, I think, with Steve telling me that, you know, this might be a good model to study. He turned out to be right, as usual. And uh, it's a study that I've continued over the past decade, now with the help of my um, uh, clinical colleague, uh, Dave Rubin. And uh, it takes advantage of this model of patients with ulcerative colitis who have undergone total colectomy with an ileal pouch anal anastomosis. And um, most of you know that uh, about half of these patients will develop colitis or uh, palchitis within a two-year period. There's something peculiar about these UC patients developing this condition because um, the non-IBD patient that undergoes the same procedure develops palchitis in a far less frequency. That's specifically patients with familial adenomatous polyposis. Um, And it doesn't look the same. The disease course and uh, many of the features are very different from UC Palgitis. We know that this is a microbe dependent process because the uh, best practice is to treat them with antibiotics and most will respond. Um, This is a disease uh, or model where we actually can see events before they happen. So at time zero, when that, that pouch is functionalized, most patients, in fact, all patients in our study, didn't have disease. They were free of disease, most of them were off of their medications. So that's a good time zero. And what we do then is track them serially over the next two years. Uh, and, the, and the other advantage is that it's easy to sample these patients. Uh, and I'll show you that in a second. And patients serve as their own control, and that's really important, because if you try to do inter-individual comparisons, everybody's microbiome is so different that trying to make any sense of that type of data is extremely difficult. So we use each patient as their own control. So what did we find? So this is 10 years of research summarized in one slide. So the study was very simple. Uh, We sampled patients uh, starting at four months after the pouch was functionalized, and then every four months after that, and then we followed uh, the clinical outcome. We sampled in two regions. One was the pre-pouch region, that is the uh, the part of the ileum that's above the pouch, and also within the pouch. And we looked at FAP patients as well as UC patients. Now if you look at what we call the transcriptome, this is the RNA gene expression profile. We have uh, ways to actually do a very comprehensive and in-depth analysis of gene profiles in these two regions. If you compared it between the pre-pouch and pouch of the FAP patient, there's really no difference. But if you look at the differences of gene expression in the UC patient, There are over 6,000 genes that are different between the the pre-pouch and pouch. Now, this happened very early in the course, Uh, so we actually see these changes at four months. This is before any patient had uh, pouchitis. And endoscopically, uh, by all indices, they they appeared to be disease-free at that point. So something happened to these patients. They they developed some kind of abnormal response in their pouch that probably was a reaction to whatever was developing in the gut lumen. And uh, what's happening in the pouch lumen is that they're developing a colonic-like microbiota. So we think that this is uh, sort of an insight into uh, some of the basic pathophysiology of these patients. They're somehow hardwired differently from other patients. They, they respond to signals in a very, very different way. But those changes are not sufficient by themselves to cause disease because in the 20 plus patients that we follow, all of these patients showed this programmatic response, but not all of them developed disease. So we think that this is an indicator a risk, but not a, con- a cause of the disease. Okay, so when we do the pathway analysis, that is if, if we look at the genes that are differentially regulated and we try to sort them out, a couple of interesting things emerge. One is that a lot of genes that are not normally expressed by the ileum are now disappearing and they're being replaced by genes that are only expressed in the colon. So it's sort of like the pouch is turning into a colon. Now why this is important is that it provides a plausible explanation why ulcerative colitis only affects the colon and never affects the small intestine. In this scenario, this clinical model, what we may be seeing is that this pouch is developing certain features of a colon which then renders it susceptible to many of the regional processes that may have caused the disease. So to sum it up, uh, this this is a graphic that basically says it all. That is that uh, we know that environmental factors will affect the gut microbiome, but in a non-IBD subject, we seem to tolerate that just fine, and we don't develop disease. In contrast, The same changes may be inducing a programmed response, a genetic response in an IBD patient that then leads to increased risk for disease. Again, not sufficient by itself, but enough to uh, render the patient susceptible. So this leads me to the second part of the talk. What's the role of gut microbes in UC palchitis? And um, for this, we made a very interesting observation by uh, serially tracking these patients, and what we found is that there were blooms of certain types of organisms before and during the development of palchitis. So shown along the x-axis is the the days after uh, functionalization of the pouch, and the red circles indicates when the patients develop pouchitis. So this is just a representative of uh, four, four patients, but in many, not all of our patients, we saw a bloom of a particular species called Bacteroides fragilis before and during the development of pouchitis. Normally this organism is present in less than 1% of all bacteroidetes. But if you look at patient 214, you can see that before and certainly during, you see uh, just a uh, huge expansion of this type of organism up to about 60 to 80%. So we decided to explore that further. And we used a very, very interesting genetic approach that was developed by this very clever young man, uh, Murat Aaron, who's an assistant professor at the University of Chicago, where we used the metagenomic data and we organized it in a way to actually assemble genomes of individual strains of uh, Bacteroides fragilis. And what you see here, can be very simply summarized in the following way. So we looked at the differences between luminal bacteroides fragilis compared to that associated with the mucosa of the ileal pouch. And what we found was very interesting. By 16S, it looked the same. It looked like there was just one species. But when we did metagenomic sequencing, we used uh, in this, uh, the inner circle is actually the reference genome that we um, uh, put together for the luminal Bacteroides fragilis. And then comparing it to the middle circle, which is the reference uh, the genome of the uh, mucosal associated B-frag, you can see that where their are areas are dark, those, gene, those genes are identical. So for the most part, this was almost an isogenic uh, species at the mucosa and also at the luminals, uh, in the lumen. But they differed in a number of hot spots. Those are the spikes that you see. That is that something is missing there in the mucosal med, uh, genome that is present in the luminal genome. And it turns out that uh, if you look at those carefully, Uh, There are eight spots, those are the pink uh, lines. Those are genetic clusters for a particular process that is important for the formation of something called capsular polysaccharide. So what is capsular polysaccharide? So this is the outer coating of many bacteria, uh, shown here. And what it is, is it's a way for microbes to essentially change their clothes or appearance to adapt to whatever environment they are in. And often it's used by microbes to develop virulence. So in this case, it might be that this change of uh, uh, capsular polysaccharide led to the ability, conferring the ability of luminal strains to attach to the mucosal surface, invade, activate the immune system, and trigger the inflammation on the background of genetic susceptibility. And just to graphically show you what it uh, what it looks like, so you see the fuzzy coat of the uh, homophilus influenza shown in the photomicrograph at the bottom. In the mutant, which is avirulent, that disappears. So trying to put this together, uh, this is the working model. Uh, So after the pouch is functionalized over a three to four month period, um, we know that a colonic-like microbiota develops in the ileal pouch, not in the pre-pouch region. Uh, The non-IBD patient seems to tolerate that just fine, doesn't seem to react to it, but the UC patient uh, develops a compensated state of immune activation and inflammation, but also has this metaplastic change, this sort of aberrant response that makes it look more like a colon. Now, half of those patients, that seems not to have any consequences, but in the other half, they, they go on to develop palchitis. And we think that that's because there's a second trigger. That second trigger may be the emergence of some of these uh, virulent uh, microbes that we thought were commensal and uh, that uh, their virulence may have been acquired through lateral gene transfer or just acquisition during the time that they uh, had their ileal pouch. Now what does this all mean? Well, if we're right, and we certainly have to go back and really uh, uh, study more patients, I think it changes the paradigm for IBD. You know, over the past 100 years, a pathogen for IBD has never been identified. Why is that? Well, maybe we're looking for the wrong thing in the wrong place. And what we might be looking for is not trying to identify a taxon, that is whether it's an E. coli or whether it's a bacteroidetes, because that's meaningless. It's really whether they have genetic elements that confer virulence. And so what we should be tracking, potentially, as a biomarker is these virulence elements. And in one patient, it might be in this microbe, But in another patient, it might be in this microbe. And so we have to change our strategies, again, we have to make sure that we're on the right track here, in thinking about following what weaponizes these types of microbes. The clinical implications and future goals are enormous, I think. Uh, First of all, If this is really a genetic signature, both on the host as well as the microbe side, we can develop biomarkers that uh, could be used for risk assessment. Furthermore, it could be used as a way of identifying patients who would benefit from prevention and also could uh, be used as a metric for determining what kind of treatment. And certainly, we can... Uh, stratify patients by these metrics and think about things like a cure. So I'll end there, and uh, I'm, I'm very delighted to be here, but I think it's time to feed our microbiome.